Hey everyone, this is Rebecca. You're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is Opal Tometi, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. We talk about the initial inspiration for the movement, what the movement stands for, and how you can get active and vote. But I'd love to first start out like your youth, your sort of history, um, growing up, what that was like and what led you to, you know, really be uh, a, a servant to others in a way of, of helping people who are marginalized or who are not treated fairly. I would love to see if we can start at the beginning. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm the daughter of two incredible, beautiful human beings who are also immigrants from Nigeria. And I grew up in what I would call a very tight knit, like Nigerian immigrant community in in Phoenix. But we were, of course, in Phoenix. And so it wasn't the most diverse (laughs) city, you know, in the country. It's 4% Black, you know, it's largely white and um, Latinx community members. And I really came of age in kind of the suburbs, you know, and kind of working class communities. And I found myself at a very early age, you know, raising questions around race and racism because, you know, I was I was I was young. I was curious. I would be walking down the street and hear somebody, you know, yell the N word at me and other racial epithets. I would, you know, have my friends have different interactions um, on campus and be raising questions around like, you know, why were we getting these kinds of treatments versus others? Um, And so from somewhat of an early age, I I began to raise certain questions. Um, But I think the most, the most pivotal thing for me was actually when I was in middle school. And I recall my parents actually almost being, you know, deported And I just remember sitting in the courtroom thinking, you know, why would this country and why would somebody want to tear my family apart? And it was very confusing as a young person. I obviously love my parents, love my community, only knew that community (laughs) growing up. And I also just had such a sense of pride with, you know, being Nigerian as well, like kind of having this hyphenated kind of existence. And I didn't feel like, you know, anything was wrong with us. And I remember being so in tune with our culture, you know, we'd have these amazing cultural celebrations, like naming ceremonies and particular ways that we do our weddings and, um, you know, the kind of food that we ate at home and, and so on. And so I just you know, my, my existence felt very, you know, normal. It was, it was just my world. And I had other friends who were also kids of immigrants. Like my best friend was from Jordan. The other one was from Sri Lanka. Some of my other homegirls, you know, with other types of, you know, identities like Puerto Rican, my other homegirls, German. And so we were all kind of connected to our origins, but also saw ourselves as just, you know, everyday people, young, young people kind of making our way Um, through the world. And I just remember the feeling of helplessness and confusion sitting in that courtroom. And thankfully, you know, they won their case and everything and they're perfectly fine now. But I remember between that and then having some other uncles and aunties caught up in immigration detention and, you know, one who was deported and had to leave behind her She's a widow and she had four amazing daughters who were my close friends and, you know, they were left behind. And I just, from that time on, really 
became curious about how to change this, right? Just how to speak up and how to protect our families, how to protect really vulnerable communities that were, you know, to me, just people like you, but also just, it just didn't make sense to me. (laughs) It just quite literally didn't make sense to me. So, you know, I went on from those kind of early years in, in high school and I was sat on a diversity council in high school and represented at the district level. I was the only black, you know, person, not even just student black person in those rooms and was in leadership on clubs and then went on to college and studied history, got my bachelor's in history. And even during college was working with women in domestic violence shelters and leading women's groups and then became even more involved in the immigrant rights movement. And then more largely in the racial justice movement, understanding that so much of what was happening in the space around immigration felt very much so like it was an effort to undermine the gains of the civil rights movement, which I studied so closely and had, you know, at that time I began to get mentors and other folks who were part of the civil rights movements. And so it became clear to me that so much of the anti-immigrant movement was about undoing the gains that, that Black people had won. And it was just clear, clear to me that I needed to get more and more involved in that I had a personal connection to it, but also could see that our larger community was being impacted and that I really wanted to work more quickly and and felt like community organizing was the way to go. Although for many years, I thought I was going to go to law school and become a lawyer. And I thought that was how you make change. Um, But I realized that change could happen with everyday people coming together, feeling their own sense of agency and making decisions about their life of how they're going to come together and advocate as a collective and build their power um, so that we can change the system. So those were kind of my early days. And, you know, beyond that, you know, I went to New York, you know, years after that and started Black Lives Matter alongside Alicia Garza and Patrice Cullors, who were in California. And I was in New York. And that has, has obviously grown and changed over the seven years that we created it. So I'd love to first touch on, I know you were the executive director of the first National Immigrants Rights Organization for people of African descent, and then the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. So what do you think learning there prepared you for what you um, have undertaken with starting Black Lives Matter? Or maybe it didn't prepare you. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think it absolutely did. And it, it really did. So thanks for asking me that. Yeah, becoming the executive director, you know, the first woman to lead that organization and for almost 10 years, what that experience really taught me uh, was was kind of two things. One, it taught me the need to be unapologetically Black. And, you know, I was leading this organization in a time where it wasn't very sexy to talk about Blackness and your identity and really foreground um, race and the impacts of, of, of racism on our lives and and how it permeates different systems, right? So oftentimes people just strictly think about, oh, it's just criminal justice or, you know, just that's the way that we talk about race and racism. However, what leading the Black Alliance for Just Immigration taught me was that the issues around racism are, are pervasive and they're impacting every system. And so even the immigration system and, you know, healthcare and all the other things that we talk about now that seem so very, you know, very, very normal. But Baji, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, was kind of a precursor to me for, of that, right? It, it taught me um, to be more, 
you know, critical and, and, and really scrutinize what's going on in different spheres of our lives. And and not to shy away from that, right? Not to shy away from that. It's okay to talk about race. It's okay to to um, challenge issues around racism, and we should not feel shy about doing that. And we should, we you know, we should feel very confident and emboldened to raise our our voices when we know that something is wrong. Uh, and that's what I learned really in those early days. And I learned that while. Many people at the time would say that we should be colorblind and that race didn't matter and we're post-racial because, you know, when I when we were working with Baji, we were we had President Barack Obama at the time. You know, we have Oprah. We have all these like amazing, you know, accomplished black people. And so there was this notion that we should be post-racial and not discuss race. But I was situated in an organization that said, you know, we cannot avoid this. And actually, we're we're more powerful when we talk about issues around race and we're more powerful when we come together and we we give voice <laughs> to the ways in which we're being impacted in our lives with with these kinds of issues. And so that's what it taught me. It taught me the power of community because the work that I was doing was with with refugees, it was with immigrants, it was with folks who are citizens who've been part of this country for generations and generations. And so it was really a, a space that was more of a coalition um, and and really beautiful and powerful. And so it taught me a lot about you know foregrounding identity and not letting it be something that disrupts our ability to collaborate and to build campaigns that work for all of us. It taught me to center voices that are often at the margins. And so, you know, for example, if it's an undocumented immigrant that normally folks would say, hey, you know, they, they really have no place in our society. But our organization said, no, they do. They're human beings. And this is this is about human rights and dignity, period. And so we're gonna we're gonna listen to them too. And, you know, I learned a lot leading that organization. And then you know, the other thing was just I learned a lot about being a woman in leadership and, you know, what it takes to fundraise and what it takes to lead uh, even remotely because I had offices across the country and was were fundraising and developing, you know, products and campaigns. And so I learned uh, just a tremendous deal about that aspect of, of leadership and development. And it was it was very critical and very important um, for me in order to get to the place where I felt confident enough to say, hey, we need even more. (laughs) And I know I'm doing a lot already, but I want to do more and I want to build something that even reaches more people. And so that was kind of the impetus to create Black Lives Matter when when I saw that Trayvon Martin had been killed. He'd been 17 year old Trayvon Martin stopped killed by George Zimmerman. And I was quite honestly just traumatized by the fact that he was acquitted for the murder. And I knew that more had to be done. And so even the work that I did with Baji kind of gave me the confidence to say, hey, I know we can do even more. I've built stuff before. We can grow even bigger. Um, Let me collaborate with a new set of folks to see what more can be done in this time. Yeah. I think what you say is really notable, especially for any of the listeners tuning in today who are not Black, but I clearly remember growing up, and I've heard uh, enough white women tell this to me, that there was definitely an educational bent, you know, growing up when I was little, and I mean, I'm a little older than you, but there was, there is no color, everyone is equal, and it sort of set everything back. 
because while you're being told that and you should never say the words black, right? Like that was instilled in me deep to never say those things um, in my education and schooling. It, it almost set that conversation back because people were, people still are being treated unequal, right? And then you're, you're almost sitting back from this viewpoint of like, but wait, we, we were afraid to say the wrong thing. And so I think it's important to note that you becoming unapologetically black and not becoming, but owning that and, and knowing that, you know, people can be told, well, I don't see any color, but you're like, um, excuse me, (laughs) treating other people differently, even if they say that. So I just thought. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's so important. I think we, we knew that in the past, but we just had to, it was almost like a, almost like a stigma of sorts where it's like, Oh, you can't, you can't say that. It's going to be, it's going to be bad or you're going to be, it's going to be offensive. And what we realized was that no, the silence around race and racism specifically is killing us, quite literally killing us is quite literally undermining our abilities to come up with solutions, design solutions that really work for all of us and address, you know, the issues that we're, we're faced with. And so it's imperative (laughs) that we, we give voice to, who we are, but also what's happening. So let's dive into your most recent organization, Black Lives Matter. You started it. Did you have any idea that it would ignite like gunpowder? (laughs) Listen, um, I had, I'll say this. I've always wanted to be part of something bigger than myself, you know? And so I, I think, you know, kind of alluding to what I shared about earlier with my childhood and kind of, being aware of certain things early on and kind of finding my voice somewhat early on. Obviously it's grown and strengthened and refined over the years, but like knowing something was going on for so long, I was longing quite literally, you know, longing for real substantive transformation of our society. I I felt that deep in my bones and felt very much so connected and committed to being part of that change, being part of that process. And so even my my studies, you know, Bachelor of History, that was because I wanted to understand where we were and why we were. Um, I went on to do my master's in communications, and that was about effectiveness of advocacy campaigns and, you know, the rhetoric of social movements. And a lot of my papers were all about that and about using social media for social good. Um, and so my, my background kind of led me to this time not even kind of, it definitely did. (laughs) But what I did not know was how it would happen, right? You know, you have these senses within you, but you don't know exactly the details of how it would happen. And I knew I wanted to catalyze a conversation that I felt was absolutely necessary because I could see how it was playing out in my communities between you know, the stuff around immigration we talked about, uh, to just seeing and hearing the countless stories of, of Black families who were um, impacted by state-sanctioned violence with these with these killings, and, you know, if it's vigilantes or by at the hands of police, it was just abundantly clear that something had to be done on a massive scale. And to me, part of the solution was being in the ears <laughs> of millions of people. And knowing that the power of social media could be that, right? That was a vehicle to get there, right? And so I, when I first heard of Black Lives Matter, which, you know, I didn't, I didn't create the, you know, the first kind of iteration of it, but Alicia Garza wrote a Facebook post and I saw the Facebook post and called her and said, 
hey, I want to build this out. Like whatever this is, <laughs> like I feel within my spirit that we have to build. And I want to go buy blacklivesmatter.com. Do you mind? You know, I want to build out a Facebook page and invite all of our friends who are community organizers to get involved and, you know, Twitter and all of that. And, you know, she was game. And I didn't know Patrice at the time, but soon after got to meet her and, you know, we connected online and everything. And in building out the social media platforms and designing kind of the black and yellow and, and, you know, choosing all of those elements, I was very clear that I wanted the message to travel far and wide. And using social media to me was was the way. Um, because we were living in a time where media actually wasn't covering our stories. You know, they weren't really, it wasn't sexy <laughs> to talk about race and racism. And they didn't want to hear about it in the nuanced ways that we knew we needed to be discussing these issues. Um, we needed to get out of just the single story. We wanted to get into the sh- questions and conversations around the structural issues um, because we're not just seeing, you know, one case here, one case there, and it's just an anomaly. No, this is routine. <laughs> these issues are routine. And um, the outcomes that we're seeing in terms of racial disparities in our healthcare system or our education system are just too pervasive to to think that these are these are one off. We needed to be talking about systems. And so to me, it was important for us to to really harness our voices online um, so that we can take action offline, but also so that we can make the type of intervention in the you know traditional media landscape that wasn't hearing our voices. And that was was just critical. So I would say I absolutely desired something big, um, something that would take, but I had no idea, you know, when and how and all of those types of things. And so I'm just so humbled and moved by the overwhelming response to what's going on. Um, but I will, you know, I'll say I can't take ownership over that. Right. I think real people feeling, uh, moved by what they're witnessing in the streets, by what they're seeing happen to to Black community members across the country. I think they're moved. I think people are moved and allow themselves to be informed by what we're doing and get involved. And to me, that's you know the most important thing. That's what I've always wanted. Is you know, however you get involved, I don't really care. Just just get involved. <laughs> um, get jump in. All hands on deck. We can't do this on our own. Totally. And I think like there's been so many inspirational, you know, take the 15% pledge. At first I was paralyzed. Like what can I actually do? Right. I can be upset. I can educate. I can protest. Right. But I, I felt this deep desire to say, oh my God, I got to do something. And so that was, I thought an incredible way for businesses to also support because I think money a hundred percent equals power. And if you can place more money in the hands of black businesses, um, and extend that idea. You could have 15% pledge for, you know, every other marginalized community. Um, I, I definitely think it could make vast change. I do want to bring up, and it's a question I'm glad, I feel lucky to know you, uh, because, you know, the media has a way of being divisive and causing issues when not needed. But I did want to bring up, you know, a question, and you've probably been asked this many times, but how is the stance with regards to, like, I've read a ton. And again, I try not to believe anything the mainstream media says, but about, you know, whether there is, you know, anti-Semitic thoughts within uh, Black Lives Matter or wrestling with some of those things. 
you know, that as people sort of co-opt movements, and I've seen it happen in other movements, and then begin to sort of put their their decisions, like, how do you, what are your thoughts on that? And, and what are your feelings about it? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I, I don't get tired of answering it either. Let me, let me be honest. And I think about it differently every time I <laughs> hear these kinds of questions. Honestly, I, I will say this, right? So Black Lives Matter, you know, the New York Times just a, about a month or two ago declared BLM being the largest movement in history, right? And I'm like, wow, the largest movement in history, beautiful and amazing. And we should all be proud. All of us who've stepped up should be proud because that is that is what we all created. And I also know that at the same time that we're getting, you know, lauded for this amazing um, kind of feat, we are also faced with the most amount of disinformation of any entity in all time as well. So we have these two kind of distinctions with BLM both being the most like the largest, but also having the most disinformation. And so that is a real issue that we're faced with. We're really faced with outright attacks, lies, you know, literally fake stories day in and day out, not even just in this country, but literally around the world. We're, we're, there's a lot of fake news about BLM, a lot of um, blogs and, and so on. And when you think about it, I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I'm just reminded about why there's such um, an aversion to Black people you know, fighting for their human rights, for respect and dignity, and and essentially saying, my skin is not a crime. <laughs> you know, why why do I continue to be profiled, harassed, you know, targeted, tased, you know, and even killed in the streets? And why can't we we stand up and and defend ourselves and assert our humanity without having this type of attack? And it's just, it's you know, to be quite honest, it's quite it's quite sad for me because I receive all kinds of DMs and emails and threats and death wishes and trolls and beyond. And it's just because we had the audacity to say that our lives have value and that we are worthy of living and that we should be respected. And it's, you know, it's, it's disturbing to see the types of attacks that we've experienced. And it's also disturbing to see how our message gets manipulated for other people's use. And I always encourage folks just to stay focused on what you've seen come out of my mouth, kind of Alicia's and Patrice's, and and, um, and just what our actual messages are. Like, right when you come to our, our our platforms, that's that's the core of it. And yes, there might be people who share you know other kinds of things and try to attribute it to BLM. You know, that's that to me is like neither here nor there. I think if people believe that black folks should not be killed in the streets or killed for sitting in their home or whatever, like that should be clear as day where you should stand and, you know, stay focused, (laughs) stay focused on the issue at hand and let's use our energy and our ability to scrutinize on the things that are worth scrutiny, not our, not, you know, just not the core of, of who we are and our message and our organization. I don't, I don't think that's, you know, that's helpful or, or a good use of folks' time. But, you know, I, I also, at the same time, I recognize, yeah, those questions do come up. And I would encourage people, instead of looking for reasons not to support BLM, <laughs> stay true to, to what you know we're about and the reason that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people across the country and around the world 
were in the streets. We know exactly what that was about. So I encourage people just to to stay focused. We need to build a multiracial democracy that works for all of us. We don't have that now. And that's the task at hand. And so I encourage folks to just be focused on that. I think that's really great that you said that because I feel like people go to three places for their news and their information and very very often all kinds of other important issues, you know, uh, they don't go to the source. So I'm, I'm glad you're saying to go to the source, AKA what comes out of your three mouths and the site um, yes. and not what all the other crazy people do to co-opt uh, a movement. Exactly. <laughs> so why is voting important, Opal? Well, it's a very important question. I, and I think now more than ever, we all who, you know, those of us who are eligible to vote should exercise our voice and our values and use our vote, right? And, and register your vote. It's important that we ensure that people know where you stand, what you value. And the vote is one key area where we can make our, our choices <laughs> and our values known. And I think this election that's coming up here in November, which is not only about the presidential office or, or only about VP, but it's about all the down-ballot um, measures. It's about Supreme Court justices in the future. It's about so much of what shapes our day-to-day lives. And I really want to encourage you know everybody who's listening to not only go out and vote for themselves, but encourage your family members, encourage your friends, encourage people in in your communities to um, also vote. We need to ensure that folks can do that. And I would also just say that it's important that we protect uh, everybody's ability to vote. We see right now that there are all of these efforts to undermine our ability to vote. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. I you know, I just got to remind folks sometimes, like we are still in this pandemic. It is very difficult for folks to be out, especially folks that are elderly in our communities to be out. And so even the ability to do early voting, to vote by mail, and all of that is so important. But we can also see that there have been these attacks on, you know, USPS. There are all these, you know, other attacks on, you know, voting poll locations and so on, particularly in communities of color. And I would just encourage us to to stay vigilant because, you know, quite honestly, I, I know why they don't want us to vote. You know, it's gonna change <laughs> it's gonna change the status quo, but we need we need the status quo to change, quite honestly. And so and it's our right to vote. So we should be able to access our vote and it should be protected. And um, so I just want to encourage those of us and, and even allies to black communities, communities of color, you know, more broadly to do what you can to, to speak out, to get active, right? To physically be involved in these efforts to protect the vote, to ensure access to the vote. Um, And I also think that employers can also do a lot in this time, right? So employers can also give their employees the day off, right? Paid time off to, to go vote. So not even just the, you know, four hours or so. I would encourage everybody just to say, hey, just like other countries do, it's a national holiday and you can go and vote. 
and you have the day off to do that because the lines might be longer this year. You know, we're not exactly sure what's going to happen with given the the pandemic and the various efforts to to stop the vote. Um, and so I think it's going to take a certain level of determination um, from all of us to protect our democratic rights. So this vote is very, very important. It's probably the most important election of my lifetime. I, I will probably get to say that. And I encourage everybody who is eligible to vote to do that. And if you're not, you can also encourage and, and help people register. If you're not, if you're maybe a young person or an undocumented person, you can encourage people in your community to vote and you can help drive people to the polling locations. I just encourage everybody to be involved in this election and know that this, the work that we have to do is is beyond, right? It's beyond this election, but this is going to be one really pivotal time where we need all hands on deck but we're going to need all hands on deck beyond November. Amen to that. I think as someone who was previously an apathetic non-voter, one of those few things that we can do to really make change, make progress, and make our voices heard. And as much as you think your voice doesn't matter, it truly does. And uh, we're seeing proof of that right now. So yeah, uh, we partnered with Vote Run Lead. We launched a t-shirt last week. So the proceeds go. And what I love about Vote Run Lead is they teach women how to run for office. And I've, said it, on, I've <laughs> said it on national TV, women do it better. So if they can be in office, then I think things will be much better than the patriarchy having ruled us for the last thousand, couple thousand years. Absolutely. I could not agree more. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. We will have a different society, a more equitable society, a safer society, one that we could really be proud of. So yeah. I could not agree more. I'm so glad to hear that you're you're part of that initiative. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Opal, for your time. I know you are changing the world. So I so appreciate you doing this podcast with me. Absolutely. My pleasure, Rebecca. You are amazing. And I appreciate the way that you continue to um, evolve in your own leadership and speak up and just do such incredible work in the community. So thank you. You're such a boss. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.